0: It is Writer's Block on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It is Friday, June 26th. And Richard, where did June go? I can't believe this month is already
1: over. Hey Donovan, uh, we're not doing the radio show. We're doing the podcast. At least that's what I've been told as I read this script from producer Amal Delich, who thinks that this is a fantastic intro for our podcast.
0: Well, our radio producer, Travis McKenzie, uh, who evidently is not on the other line as we are doing a podcast, would never come with such a bad script. And so uh, maybe that's why I got confused because I didn't have a professional uh, walking me through this. Thanks, guys.
1: (laughs) Wait a minute. You didn't read your line, Amal. What happened? You changed it up.
2: I'm improvising. So thanks, guys.
1: All right, Amal. We're just joking, of course, because um, we, Donovan Bennett and myself have been co-hosting Writer's Block this week. As the people who listen to this podcast know, we are on Sports on Pause all the time. And Donovan, we will be featuring an interview we did on Writer's Block on this podcast, correct?
0: We will, yeah. I mean, listen, it was all the way back, and again, for real, thinking about how far back we were, in April when we released episode one of Sports on Pause, and it featured antimicrobial expert, Dr. Andrew Morris. I hope I pronounced it correctly this time because I certainly didn't do it back then. Uh, And during that interview, we asked Dr. Morris about the bubble leagues that we were hearing about, the biosphere league in baseball, and if it was effective in terms of resuming play.
2: I guess in theory, that's a, a possibility, but a practicality, I don't see it. And I don't see it because players are people and they're human. And with what we're seeing right now, relatively speaking, we're giving people a fair amount of uh, liberal leeway to continue to go on with decent part of their life, even though much of our lives have been halted. But in that scenario, they're largely going to be prisoners, and I just don't see that happening.
1: And now that we're starting to see leagues return, knock on wood, has Dr. Morris's stance on bubble environments changed since then? Here's our interview. With dr andrew morris
0: dr morris i remember after our conversation in april it was sobering i was like man okay get ready for the new normal we're not gonna have sports for the foreseeable future but here we are and leagues are trying to restart should they be has your perspective changed at all from then to now it's changed
2: somewhat i really uh, i wish the nba hadn't chosen orlando you know, it would have been much better if they chose Timmins or something like that to uh, <laughs> have, their, have their bubble. You know, I think it's really been uh, unfortunate that where they're, you know, heading to, well, the Raptors are there already, is, you know, one of the global hotbeds of COVID-19. And I don't know if that's going to affect uh, inside their bubble. I still am really concerned that they're going to be able to deliver for a prolonged period of time on keeping COVID-19 out effectively outside of the bubble or well-contained in the bubble. You know, the plan that they have seems to be a pretty solid one, but when you look at what's going on in Orlando, especially with the hospital situation in Orlando and the testing situation, I do wonder whether or not some of the athletes and or management might get some cold feet
1: Doctor, I want to um, I want to sort of take this a little bit uh, writ larger. You're obviously seeing the numbers throughout the United States. Cases, I think yesterday, uh, were the most since April. We're seeing outbreaks in Florida and Texas and Arizona. Major League Baseball is going to attempt to play across that country. The National Football League is going to attempt to play across that country. College football is scheduled to be played across that country from your perspective. What is this, I'm not going to call it a second wave, but what does this continuing wave of COVID-19 mean, in your opinion, for the return of these major North American team sports?
2: So, you know, I think what we're seeing is is sort of various degrees of uh, sort of denialism across the U.S. So I think of all the plans that are the best thought out so far that what I've seen is the NBA plan, because they are really at least for the short period of time, trying to keep things protected. But if you look at what's going on in uh, what I refer to as the fat states" of Florida, Arizona, and Texas, but then beyond that, like it's more than just that. It's, it's California, it's Oklahoma, it goes beyond. And, you know, there is no apparent plan that I can see that's going to simmer things down anytime soon. You know, I actually didn't realize it was April that I was with you guys because it it seems like it was a lifetime away. So in COVID time, a few months can, a lot can change. Like really, a a lot can change quite substantially. So it is possible that things could simmer down to the point where, you know, having sports would be realistic. But, you know, the NFL are, are talking about having fans at stadiums. You know, the way things are in in Texas, for example, I can't imagine that in any way, shape, or form that they would have fans. And really, those fat states are on their way to a situation where they may see health care system collapse. And, you know, when you see that happening and when it starts to get on the TV screens and the, t- the computer monitors, like what we saw in New York City a couple of months ago, uh, things change in a big way. And, uh, you know, that will put the brakes on almost any plan. Uh, you know, I think the NHL thoughts. you know, if, if the NHL were to come to Canada and stay within Canada, if we are as successful as we have been and continue to be, that would also potentially be a way to at least have the pro sports without the fans. But Major League Baseball's plan of, you know, you know proposing that it go across borders, I, you know, I, I'd be shocked if the Canadian government allowed uh, Major League Baseball to come uh, from the U.S. and back and forth between the U.S. and Canada.
0: You mentioned it could simmer down, but you would need some intentional acts for that to be the case, and we're actually getting. Oh, oh yeah. The president is not only having rallies, he's he's talking about the fact that, you know, he's going to decrease testing and, and funding in terms of resources. And even in Canada's phases open up, seeing massive amounts of people at beaches and now today at malls. My fear in terms of the sports conversation is when the NBA went away, a lot of people took it more serious than they had before. And as sports come back and as we start to unlock our economy, I'm afraid that people with the fatigue are going to do the exact opposite. Do the people in your circles who are seeing uh, really the resources, do they have similar fears?
2: So, yeah, like, you know, as you have correctly pointed out, you know, what needs to happen in the U.S. is a pretty large-scale totally turning the ship in a different direction. I don't see that happening, right? But this is like a cruise liner that's been going in one direction, all in the wrong direction. And now we're saying, all of a sudden, you need to turn that cruise ship like 180 degrees, right? Right. So we need to not only ramp up testing, but you need to improve all their infrastructures. You need to have people starting to behave responsibly, you know, not go in crowded areas, wear masks in public. And all that starts from you know the president on down. But in these states, it's not only the presidents, but it's the governors, right? So whether it's you know Abbott in Texas or DeSantis in Florida or Ducey in Arizona, you know these are governors that have largely denied the importance of this problem. It's changing a little bit, but they're not panicking in the way they should be, you know. And so we're not going to see a a substantial uh, reversal for a while, and we're you know. We've seen the rise in cases, and we're seeing the rise in hospitalizations. The next thing that happens is the rise in deaths. And you are going to see the rise in deaths over the next few weeks. There's no doubt in my mind that you're going to see that. It may take a little bit longer because it's mostly younger people who are getting infected. But younger people don't stay away from older people. And it doesn't have to be like 80 and 90-year-olds. It can be, you know, 40, 50, 60-year-olds. They're going to get infected. They'll end up in the in the hospital and they'll be dying. And then maybe, maybe uh, the conversation will change in some of these states.
1: Dr. Morris, um, where do you stand on the prospect of Toronto being an NHL hub city? Nothing's foolproof, but is there a scenario in your mind where it could work with little public health risk to the public at large, as well as the players who'd be part of that hub city? yeah you know
2: a lot of the things that we expect of the public are things that we should expect of uh, you know anyone else who's going to be part of our public and that includes all the things that we've expected around social distancing, masking in public, uh, washing hands, all that kind of stuff and then on top of that, for people who come outside the country, they should be quarantined for 14 days so that even if they do come infected, we reduce that. Ideally, I'd love to see them get tested beforehand so that there's an understanding of what they have and then get retested while here. On top of that, you need, you know, if if Toronto or any other city were to be a hub city, to expect athletes to be hanging around here, you're going to expect that they're going to bring, you know, friends, families, partners, all those kind of things. And you've got the whole team infrastructure. And so you've got to work with all of those people to keep them at low risk as well, right? And often, you know, professional athletes are are human and they tend to be young and energetic and they want to be out and about. So being out and about increases your risk of exposure. And if they're constantly also in in change rooms, et cetera, you know, that also increases uh, their risk of passing it on to each other. So it's really just important that they follow the protocols that the league has outlined. And then on top of that, they follow all the measures that public health has endorsed. And I think you can actually pull it off in Canadian hub cities quite safely, whether it's Toronto or another city. I know Winnipeg's pulling really hard because, you know, it's not like they've been hit hard by COVID.
0: You know, there are two massively important conversations that we're having as a society and and, and thus having inside our, our sports culture. That's clearly our uh, measures in terms of the coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic. And the other is, is social. It's about racism and anti-black racism specifically. When you see the large gatherings of people protesting f- for something that means a lot to them, but also, I mean, it's very difficult to socially distance uh, at a protest. Everyone in those scenes are not the 10 people in said bubble. How do you perceive those scenes, knowing you know what you know about how the virus can spread?
2: So it's, it's a topic not without controversy amongst peers of mine. I think you know, from my perspective, racism in all forms is a public health crisis in many ways. I think you know, poverty and uh, marginalization are also public health crises, and it's not only at the hands of you know, in the U.S. or even to some degree in Canada, police officers, you know, where there have been unnecessary deaths. We've seen COVID affect minority populations and other vulnerable populations more than the rest of, the, of our communities. So I think that it's a really important conversation and I think that those protests are, are were and are really important. I think what we've seen is, fortunately, there doesn't seem to have been a substantial fallout from those protests from a COVID perspective. There may have been some, but these are—you know—we're always balancing, you know, the costs and benefits of everything that we do. And I think that as a society, I think it was a reasonable one to say, you know, we'll encourage people to protest safely by trying to be a bit distant, by the wear, wearing masks. And fortunately, it's outdoors where the risk of transmission seems to be substantially less than indoors. And I, I think, you know, to be able to voice and bring to everyone's, you know, recognition and awareness the importance of these challenges that we have and start working to uh, overcome them, you know, I, I think it trumps concerns around transmission.
0: And lastly, before we let you go, we'd be remiss if we don't allow you to speak truth to power. Vince Carter's legacy is what, in the order of Raptors retirees, in your mind, is what?
2: (laughs) I'm going to say the first number that should be retired is Kyle Lowry. That will be my uh, diplomatic, you know, I've been a Raptors fan since day one, and so I I harbor, you know, Vince was in many ways uh, such a huge contribution to basketball in, in Canada and really around the world and inspired me and many other people. But in terms of, Orders of retiring numbers, I find it hard not to have Kyle Lowry, who, you know, A, has stood through for a long period of time and massively contributed to bringing a championship. So my my first number retiree would be Kyle.
0: Well, he's been a great supporter of the healthcare workers, so that makes sense uh, that you'd be locked up with Larry uh, and, and locked up with Daish on that conversation. Listen, the conversation that you have with us is always one that's badly needed and really important. So thank you for educating us and our audience once again, and thank you for all the work that you're doing.
1: No, thank you, guys. Take care. All right. It's time to do for the uh, last word segment that we always do on this podcast where um, we try to provide you with just interesting things that we've read or, or seen on COVID-19. Our uh, super producers, Amal Delich and Dan Lorimer, always help us out with this by sending us the stuff that they've seen as well. One thing I happened to see, uh, I think the day after it came out, and I thank a couple of Twitter users for pointing me in this direction was a piece in the San Antonio Express-News by Lauren Caruba. She's a writer there and she and a photographer spent two nights alongside doctors, nurses and patients in a COVID-19 ICU unit in San Antonio and it was incredibly fascinating just to read about what they've gone through, some of the decisions that they've had to make. I mean these are people who really are just doing I mean just unimaginable work night after night after night. And that really paints a very sobering picture of what it is like in an ICU unit. So I can't recommend that enough. Again, the San Antonio Express News, Lauren Karuba, and it's basically a day in the life of these doctors, nurses, and patients over two days.
0: That's a good one. Shout out to you for uh, pointing it out. Uh, Shout out also to NPR, who's done great work throughout the pandemic. Jason Bobian, he has a piece about the coronavirus mystery, which explores why kids seem much less likely to catch the coronavirus than adults. I saw actually on Twitter some like, College football fans saying, oh, the kids in these programs should be able to go back to play because they're less susceptible of catching it. When we're talking about kids, we're talking about like literally adolescents and toddlers, not college football players. Uh, Having said that, maybe we'll be waiting for a vaccine until college athletes are back on campuses. We've heard some talk from Dr. Fauci about how close or not close a vaccine actually is.
1: Although you can
2: never guarantee at all the safety and efficacy of a vaccine until you actually test it in the field, we feel cautiously optimistic based on the concerted effort and the fact that we are taking financial risks, not risks to safety, not risks to the integrity of the science, but financial risks to be able to be ahead of the game so that when, and I believe it will be when and not if, We get favorable candidates with good results. We will be able to make them available to the American public, as I said to this committee months ago, within a year from when we started, which would put us at the end of this calendar year and the beginning of
0: 2021. And so just to follow that up, because really that's what we should be focusing on is not just flattening the curve, but when a vaccine may be readily available. Publica has a piece on how and when a vaccine can become a reality. So give that a read when you get the chance. Please also, when you get the chance, be sure to favorite, like, share, subscribe. As we do appreciate the love. We likely won't be doing this podcast until there's a vaccine. But while we're doing it, we appreciate the support. Also, continue to social distance and stay safe. Take care of yourself and others.